Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome to Space Junk. My name is Annie Hanmar, and today's podcast is all about our place in space. I'm currently in Melbourne. On Wednesday evening, I'll be moderating a panel discussion with Alice Gorman, a.k.a. Dr. Space Junk, Donna Lawler, Kerry Doherty, Gabrielle Harris, and Caridwen Dovey. The event is a public forum on the moon, put on by the Moon Village Association and the Office of Other Spaces. If you're in Melbourne and you're interested in attending, you can head to www.mvapublicforum.com. In anticipation of the event, and to provide a bit of a taster, I caught up with Kerry Doherty, a brilliant space historian who will be on Wednesday's panel to reflect on Australia's history with the Apollo program and how we see our place in the universe. Hello, my name is Kerry Doherty. Um, I work with the Australian Space Agency, but I'm also a space historian and have been for many years. Used to work with the Powerhouse Museum, where I was the curator of space technology. And in fact, I was with the Powerhouse for just over 30 years. And Kerry, you were responsible for making that fantastic space exhibition at the Powerhouse, is that right? And securing some of the big exhibits? Yes. Yeah, the, the space exhibition or both versions of the space exhibition at the Powerhouse were my babies, you might say. <laughs> and um, when we were developing the Powerhouse, so this is in the, in the 80s, and I was asked to take on developing the space exhibition, one of the things I really wanted to do at that time was to, because this was still the Cold War, was to show that there were many nations involved in space and it mm. wasn't just... NASA and the United States, as wonderful as their accomplishments are, but to show that the Soviet Union had a space program, China had a space program, Europe had a space program, and even Australia was doing things and mm. had been doing things in space. Um, so that I was, I was really looking very broadly at um, material that I could bring in for the exhibition. And for people who've seen the exhibition, you'll know it's in a very large cathedral-like space, the old boiler hall. So we also wanted large, some large objects which would fill that, make use of that space. Mm. Um, and in fact, part of the way we worked it when the Soviet Union particularly uh, came to the party and offered, uh, offered us a number of replicas of different space probes and uh, spacecraft. And we actually 
hung hung them from the ceiling from the roof so that mm. you had the idea of spacecraft in orbit um, and then the great height in the building actually gave us that opportunity. How did you go about, go about securing these artefacts from the Soviet Union at the time? That must have been quite complicated. It was a lengthy process of um, loan negotiation. The Probably the hardest part was actually finding the right people to talk to. Mm. Once we found the correct people that we needed to be talking with, um, it was a lot more straightforward, but there was still a great deal of negotiation which involved a lot of diplomatic um, were you know diplomatic involvement of the um, foreign affairs department and so forth and the embassies well, the Soviet embassy here mm, I bet um, yes yeah so it was, took several years I mean I started working on the exhibition in 84 and we opened the exhibition in the October of 88 so it was essentially a four-year uh, program to develop it Mm. Those who have visited or remember the exhibition will know that there was also a real focus on Australia and our place within space and our history with space. And Kerry is also the author of a book, Australia in Space, um, which is an excellent read if if anyone is interested. But Kerry, I was hoping you could do for us a sort of of back-of-the-envelope very quick rundown on Australia's history with space and in particular focusing on Australia's history with the moon. Um, (laughs) Asking for a a back-of-the-envelope description of Australia's space activities in like five minutes is almost impossible. I managed to do it in 12 once. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll see how we go. (laughs) um, Let's actually focus on the... The relationship of Australia with the, the Moon Program, mm. because in fact, ours was a very significant role. Um, many people, of course, will have seen the movie The Dish, so that you know they know, even though that movie is not exactly factually accurate, um, they know that Australia was involved with mm. bringing the television from the Moon to the world. But we actually had a, a broader association, which goes back to the actually the beginnings of the space age because uh, when the United States was planning to launch their first satellite as part of the International Geophysical Year, so this is the period of 1957-58, having a satellite in orbit is not much good if you don't know where it is and you can't get data from it. And so what they had to develop along with the satellite was a global network of tracking stations that could track the satellite in orbit and receive data from it. And for a number of geographical and political reasons, Australia was very well placed to be the site of, um, in fact, two. There were two different tracking networks that were developed. One was a radio network called Minitrack, and the other was an optical network using a uh, a very advanced uh, telescopic camera, Mm. which is referred to as a Baker Nun. And Australia happened to be very well placed for both of these systems to be stationed here and they were both set up initially at Woomera as part of the tracking of this first satellite. Uh, In fact Australia was the only place where the two types of systems could both be located in the same place because Woomera just happened to have ideal um, environmental conditions both for the radio tracking and the optical tracking. Mm. And that began Australia's association with the United States 
in space tracking. Now, NASA didn't even exist at this point. NASA didn't come into existence until uh, 58. Mm. And when it did, it took over this tracking network that had been developed for the Vanguard satellite for the IGY. And that then began Australia's association with NASA, which expanded fairly rapidly as NASA's own programs expanded. So in 1960, we had the first deep space tracking station established at Island Lagoon, which was just outside uh, Woomera. Mm. And this was for deep space probes. Now, essentially, that initially meant the probes to the moon. Uh, so some of the very earliest spacecraft that were sent out away from the Earth were trying to get to the moon, um, essentially for the precursors of the Apollo program to find out exactly what the moon, what the surface of the moon was like before we sent astronauts there. Mm. Because there were several, uh, several theories um, about the surface of the moon that suggested that, in fact, it might be a dangerous place to try and land astronauts. There was one uh, school of thought that the moon might be covered with dust, layers of dust that were so deep that literally if the lunar module landed on it, it would sink down into the dust and disappear. Mm. Um, you know, and that could be a bit embarrassing. Right. And there was actually another school of thought that thought that perhaps um, oxygen chemically trapped in the lunar dust might somehow um, combust as a result of the pressure of the lunar module or an astronaut's footstep, you know, stepping on it. Uh Yeah, that could be a bit embarrassing if Neil Armstrong had stepped out onto the lunar surface and disappeared in a sheet of flame. Mm. So, So, you know, they really needed to know what the surface of the moon was actually like. And there were two... Uh, well, there are three space programs, uh, Ranger, Lunar Orbiter, and Surveyor, and they were sort of sequentially exploring the surface of the moon. So mm. the Ranger probes were designed to crash into the moon and just make sure the surface was hard, mm. you know, that there wasn't this dust that you'd sink into. The uh, Lunar Orbiters are exactly what their name said. They went around the moon, took very detailed photographic mapping of the moon to look at the best landing sites for Apollo. And then the surveyors actually landed on the lunar surface to actually make sure that a spacecraft could softly touch down, that an astronaut could step out. And they had the, these uh, great scoops on board that would, um, you know, you could watch the, the images of it picking up or taking scoops out of the lunar soil to test its mechanical properties, things like that. Mm. And so all of these missions um, Australia played a, played a part in through Island Lagoon and then in the mid-60s, the Tidbinbilla tracking station, which was established near Canberra, mm. which, of course, still exists today as the uh, Canberra Deep Space Communication Centre. So they, they were both involved in that uh, tracking. And at the same time as the human spaceflight program got underway. So you had the Mercury program, which was the, the single astronaut spacecraft, then Gemini, which was the two, you know, two-person two spacecraft where they were actually testing out techniques that they would need mm. for the Apollo mission. So um, rendezvous in space, spacewalking, uh, you know, living in space for a period of up to two weeks. Mm. Uh, so for those, they also needed... Um, special type of tracking and communication station. And uh, one of these was established at 
well, in fact, for the Mercury program, there was one established at Mouchet in Western Australia mm. and another one at Red Lake, which was also near Woomera. And then for the Gemini program, they closed Mouchet, but they opened another station at Carnarvon in Western Australia. Mm. Um, so that these were all enabling NASA to keep in touch with the astronauts as they were circling the Earth, you know, to ensure, obviously, um, not just they could get data from the astronauts, but to ensure astronaut safety. Mm. And in fact, the, the Mercury station at Mouchet in Western Australia was the only command station outside the United States. So it was almost mm. exactly halfway around the world from Cape Canaveral. So if an astronaut got into trouble and was perhaps incapacitated in orbit, the station at Mouchet could send a signal to fire the retros and bring the astronaut back to Earth, mm. which meant that you could do that at Canaveral, or you could do it at Mouchet, so the astronaut was essentially only about 45 minutes from being able to re-enter mm. and get down to help if he needed medical help. Um, so, you know, it was all part of the, the process of astronaut safety as well. And um, then with the Apollo program itself, because Apollo was going to be going to the moon, um, they needed additional stations that could specifically receive the signals from lunar distance. And they established three of these around the world and they paired them with the Deep Space Network stations mm. so that when you had the, <clears throat> the command module and the lunar module operating independently around the moon because the lunar module would be on the surface, the command module would still be in orbit with another astronaut in it. Mm. So you needed to be in communication and receiving data from both. And in this way, um, one of the manned space flight network stations could be concentrating on one spacecraft and the deep space network station nearby, which was like its twin, could concentrate on the other spacecraft. And that, again, was ensuring, you know, additional communications and backup for the uh, for the whole program. Mm. Um, so, you know, as with Apollo, you had the manned spacecraft station, and that's what the network was called, the manned spacecraft network. That was at um, Honeysuckle Creek, which mm. was not far from Tidbinbilla. So they were the, the twins in Australia. But the Carnarvon station also assisted with Apollo because it could track the launch of the spacecraft, make sure that Apollo was in orbit. They always did a, a check out in orbit before they left for the moon. And uh, Carnarvon actually gave that sort of go, no go for whether, uh, you know, whether they were in the right position to uh, head out mm. towards the moon. So, um, <clears throat> so the two, you know, so these Australian stations were all working together to ensure, uh, uh, you know, the safety of, and communications during the, um, the Apollo program. Mm. The, everybody, of course, has seen the film The Dish, and if you haven't, shame on you. Go and see it. It's a great um, film. It's a great film. Get the DVD. You will love it. Um, but The Dish is only a movie. We love mm. it. It's a, it's a great little film. It's based on the true story of what happened. Mm. But its focus is particularly on the, the Parkes Radio Telescope. But there are actually two um, stations that were involved in receiving the television from the moon. And it's an interesting thing that NASA wasn't even going to have television from the moon until very late, and I mean very late, in the planning of the um, 
Apollo program. It, it mm. wasn't finalised until I think it was the February of 69 that they would actually do it. So, right. um, you know, it was... It was Cutting it close there. It was cutting... I mean, people were planning for it, but yeah, an actual yeah. decision from the NASA higher-ups that, um, that they would actually do this wasn't made until the February. Uh, so a lot of people thought that it might be distracting to the astronauts to, to have television... Mm. Um, apart from the fact that actually making a television camera small enough, uh, you know, there were some people who weren't sure that that could be done or done in time. Mm. And there was a, an absolute genius at Westinghouse, a guy by the name of Stan Lebar, who was able to develop cameras small enough to carry, television cameras small enough to carry in the command module and then out onto the lunar surface. And he started with the black and white camera that, we saw in, in for the Apollo 11. Yeah. And then he was able to develop a colour camera that they first carried on Apollo 12. Um, very clever. Very clever. But, of course, you, it's a very low-power signal that mm. we're talking about being sent back from the moon. So um, NASA actually... the I'll take a step back for a second. Mm. I've already mentioned Honeysuckle Creek. So Honeysuckle Creek was essentially going to be the prime communications station for the Apollo mission to the, you know, for Apollo 11, well, in fact, for all the Apollo missions, when the moon was in view of Australia. Um, for Apollo 11, say, Honeysuckle was going to be the prime station. It There were many changes in the, the actual timeline of the moonwalk, and at different times it looked like Australia would be the prime station, like the moonwalk would happen while the moon was high over Australia, and at other mm. times it looked like it might occur while it was over the United States. So there was a bit mm. of chopping and changing. But um, NASA realised that, in fact, if it was going to occur in Australia's view, that it would be a good idea to have the Parkes Radio Telescope um, available as a, an additional receiving dish for the lunar television because mm. it's a much bigger um, antenna. So it's going to be able to do much better in receiving this very weak signal and mm. Parks and NASA had actually worked together previously on um, receiving some signals from some of the deep space probes, uh, like particularly the um, uh, Mariner 4, the first spacecraft to successfully get to Mars. Mm. So uh, you had Honeysuckle and um, Parks that were both on standby essentially to, for the lunar um, television so when Apollo 11 finally landed on the moon, the way the timeline worked out, the Armstrong was stepping onto the lunar surface a little before the moon was high enough in parks for them to receive a signal. Mm. So in fact, the, the first part of the broadcast from the moon actually came through Honeysuckle Creek. And those, those moments when Armstrong climbs out of the lunar module climbs down the ladder and steps onto the lunar surface. That actually comes from Honeysuckle Creek. And it was shortly after that that the moon became high enough that Parks could get the, um, you know, a superior quality of signal because of the bigger dish. Mm. And so at that point, NASA switched over to um, taking the signal from Parks and, and the, the television from Parks was used for the rest of the, the broadcast. Of course, what, hap what was happening was the signals were coming down from the moon. They were relayed then from Honeysuckle and Parks to Sydney um, to the um, OTC, which was... Uh, it's now part of Telstra, but it used to be a separate 
agency that handled all Australia's international telecommunications. Mm. So it came down to Sydney. OTC decided which signal was better. They sent that signal to a satellite uplinking station at Moree because the tracking stations didn't have the capability to uplink to the satellites in Earth orbit. Uh, So that sent it up to a satellite in Earth orbit, which sent it over to the United States. And then NASA decided, comparing with the signals that they were actually still getting from their Goldstone station, which one they would use. And in fact, the Goldstone signal wasn't that good. And so they went firstly with Honeysuckle and then with the the Park signal and then broadcast it out to the world. So that was, you know, how Australia played that very critical role in Apollo 11. Of course, we were involved in all the Apollo missions and also played a very significant role in Apollo 13. Um, In fact, we're just coming up on the 50th anniversary of that in uh, April as well. And for those who don't remember it, um, go and see the Tom Hanks movie, just remembering that it is just a movie, but it's another good film. Mm. And it hits all the main, (laughs) you know, all the main points of the mission. Um, But yeah, Australia was... In fact, again, it happened to be um, Honeysuckle Creek that was in contact with Apollo 13 just at the time that the the accident occurred. So the initial communications during the first stages of the emergency actually came through Honeysuckle Creek. And as it happened, it was also the, the last station, I think, to be in contact as they were coming back into Earth orbit. Mm. So that, you know, again, there were the quite critical roles during some very critical phases of the Apollo 13 um, mission. So, as I say, we played a role in all the, uh, all the uh, Apollo missions. So, you know, that's how Australia had a, a very important um, role in, uh, in Apollo. Terry, when we were talking about the moon and the, the view that we have of the moon told me about an experience in the early 1990s with an essay competition that was run for primary school students, asking them what they thought we might do with asteroids or or something of that nature. And I've asked Kerry to tell the story um, because there are some really interesting perspectives. So, Kerry, to you. Yeah, it was quite an interesting thing. This was a period when um, the Australian government was actually promoting the development of Australian space industry and, and we were looking at that time as a possible Australian involvement with future activities. And the Institution of Engineers um, decided to run this competition for primary school students to, uh, you know, get them interested in space. And essentially the the top I can't remember the exact topic, but it was along the lines of, you know, how might Australia use um, the asteroids? And the responses that came back and there's several several hundred I can't remember the exact number now but came back from all around Australia and what was particularly interesting was that a number of the kids had uh, and these were from different schools scattered around the country had all suggested that we could use the asteroids as a penal colony and I just thought this was quite fascinating um what was it? And I really, you know, we just don't exactly know why it was that so many students from different schools, if it had all been from one school, you could say that perhaps the teacher had said something that had, Mm. you know, planted that idea in their heads. 
but that it came from you know a number of different schools and it was just interesting that this was the thing that somehow sparked the imagination of these kids that uh, the moon uh, the, well, not the moon but the, the asteroids could become a um, a space jail right but it, <laughs> but we were saying um, earlier over lunch that the this is a motif that returns in science fiction. A lot of early science fiction um, used this idea of, of using the moon or Mars or, or the asteroids mm. as a uh, you know a, a space jail a, a, or a penal colony, you know, a place to, to dump undesirables. You know, a bit like Australia was back in seventeen eighty eight. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking maybe that's why these kids um, have been studying Australian history and yeah, well, this that, that's front of mind. One of the things we we sort of speculated on that perhaps they'd you know, done a little bit of in social studies as it was in those days in, in primary school um, about, you know, the Botany Bay colony and the origins of Australia. And maybe that was the thing that gave them the idea. But we, we just don't know. But it was fascinating that so many, you know, it was a noticeable proportion of, of the respondents who'd come up with this idea of, of um, a, uh, a penal colony on the asteroids. Thank you so much for making time to speak with me, Kerry. It's been wonderful, and I'm really looking forward to speaking with you again on Wednesday at the Moon Village Association event in Melbourne. Yes, I'm looking forward to uh, to that, and I hope people listening who are in Melbourne or able to get there might uh, come along to, uh, to join us and join the conversation. But uh, thank you for having me. No worries. And if you'd like to hear more about the history of space and the history of Australia's role in space, you can go and check out Kerry Doherty's book, Australia in Space, a really excellent resource. And you can also find Kerry's work on Star Wars, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my secret identity is, um, is as a Star Wars um, reference book writer. Yeah. So I've, I've co-authored uh, three Star Wars reference books that have come out in a couple of editions. And a Doctor Who one too. <laughs> to I must say, critical acclaim. So if you um, if you're interested in Star Wars or the history of space in Australia, Google Kerry Doherty and check out her books. They're really worth a read. Thank you. My discussion with Kerry got me thinking. I was fascinated with the idea that these Australian primary school children in 1990 seem to think of space as a sort of dumping ground for undesirables and convicts, or perhaps from another perspective, as a place where individuals could escape from authoritarian regimes and form new societies on asteroids. Do today's children still think this way? I took advantage of a free day in Melbourne to visit a local Melbourne school and find out. My discussion with these kids is available in part two of this podcast, which is available now.